hopefully we can kind of pull that together and um, but because of snow days and because of the things that have kind of gotten on our schedule we've had to adjust that schedule and it didn't go as I planned but hopefully that will not mess you up I know I'm already messed up but um, it won't mess you up as far as Mark's gospel and getting a feel for what Mark is trying to do and been trying to really pull in some of the main themes that he has in this book in particular. But uh, this, uh, this particular speech that we're going to be looking at here is in, in the book of Mark, the, the, Mark the, the statement that Mark makes here is the longest statement that he makes in his entire gospel. Mark actually chooses to give us this more attention than any other single thing that he records. Uh, the end of the chapter, starting in verse number 32, it says this. This is Jesus. He's closing this discussion, and here's what he says. No one knows about that day or that hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. That's the fourth time, actually, in this chapter alone. Uh, as you go back, you start looking at it, that he says, be on guard or be alert. It's a be aware. Um, but he says, then he goes on to say, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Same word. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come, whether in the evening or at midnight or whether the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Everybody said it together. Watch. He closes this text the very same way that he opens it in verse number five. Pay attention. Watch. Be looking. Be aware. It seems to me that the simple message, the simple message of this text really is that if we're going to be the disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be uncommon disciples, if you will, that we are going to be people who are always ready, that we're going to be ever ready, right? That we'll never be caught off guard because we will have listened very carefully to what Jesus says and we will be paying attention to the times, we'll be uh, paying attention to the seasons. I mean, I, I, I don't think to the point that we're trying to set some sort of a date for it, you know, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things, I think, about American culture. Not only American culture, I mean, it's, it's other places as well, but we're always trying to figure out, you know, when is Jesus going to come? And I, you know, I decided this a long time ago, frankly, that, that, that if he didn't know when he was going to come, that I, I really shouldn't be worried about it. I'm not going to need to really try to figure that out. Uh, I figure that he'll be coming one of these days. And when he does come, we're all going to know it when he gets here. Um, but there are some things. There are some things here in this text that he tells us to be ready for. And I, I just really find that interesting. I, I just, it really, I think, is a very simple discussion. If you look at these first four verses, chapter 13, verses number, uh, verse number one and following, first four verses of this text, look what it says here. Let's look at this. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. 
everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? It's really just a simple discussion, you know, about those magnificent buildings, those big rocks, the, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just a, a magnificent temple, frankly. I mean, it's cover, it, it covered a lot of ground. It's, it had been expanded numerous times under Herod's reign in order to make it large enough for everybody that was traveling to come to Jerusalem during those special occasions and be there. It really was a magnificent building. It would have gotten your attention, certainly. Uh, these are good Jewish men. These, and and just, just as a reminder, in Mark's gospel, most of the time these good Jewish men, they have no clue what they're doing. They, they just simply don't ever seem to get it. I mean... I mean Remember what he said, he, you know, if you go back a, a chapter or two, uh, and, and he said it this way, by the way, you know, if you say to this mountain, he says, uh, be, be cast into the, into the sea, it's going to happen. I mean, he's, he's already told them this tebble, temple is not going to last. It's not going to. This era is not going to go on forever. It's just not going to be here. He came in, he cleanses the temple, he talked about the fig tree, he withered the fig tree, in the context of cleansing the temple, and, 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 and they're still saying, whoa, look at this building, right? Isn't this building really cool? They just don't quite figure it out. And so he warns them, uh, there are some things that you ought to be aware of. If, if you look at verse number five, you, you kind of get the first of the warnings there. He says in verse five, he, uh, Jesus said to him, he says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. There are, these are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Deceived. Uh, don't be intimidated, it, you know, and whatever you do, don't be silent. And I think what he's suggesting is this, that disciples, that we're ready to speak in spite of our circumstances. There are some things that are going to happen. You ought to be warned about it now. Uh, there are some things that are going to occur. Don't be deceived, he says. People are going to come along, they're going to try to to convince you that they are really me, having already returned. Not, they're not. They're not me. But don't worry about it. Just be ready to speak. And, and, and there's a word that needs to be said. Now, the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples, of course, Mark 
doesn't tell us this. Uh, forgive me, but I'm about to borrow from another gospel here uh, rather than Mark because Mark ends with nothing happening. Remember what happened a couple weeks ago? We, we kind of talked about that, uh, um, uh, that it just kind of like they, they go away and they're afraid. And so, but, but other writers remind us in, uh, that, that Jesus' last words to his disciples were actually, go and tell. Go and talk. Go and make disciples. Go and, and announce the word. And, and that's what the early disciples did. Go and do that. In spite of their circumstances, those early disciples, they kept that command. You read the opening chapters of the book of Acts, and all of a sudden you just realize that, you know, that, that those people, they paid a great price. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 4. Um, you know, they're, they're arrested because they're preaching the gospel, right? And, and they're told to quit, and they say, no, we're not going to quit. And, and so they're arrested again, and they're beaten, and, and, and they say, you tell us, are we supposed to obey God, or are we supposed to obey men? And what do they do? They obey God, and they go out and they tell. And so they, they start, you know, they're preaching again. And, and in fact, what they do is that they go back to their, their homes, and they, and they gather some people around, and they get down into a little prayer group. And I love those verses, but... It's just, it's, it's an amazing picture that you have is that they start to pray to God because they just, they've been persecuted and they've been threatened and everything else. And they say, God, give us more boldness that we can speak about your name more. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's not the prayer I would have prayed. I would have said, God, you know, get after them. Help me. Protect me. Make it so I can be safe. But no, they didn't do that. They said, give us more boldness. Or, or I think about Acts chapter 8, you know, where they're all scattered across the whole world. And it says in, in verse, eight of cha- or, or verse 4 of chapter 8, it says that everywhere they went, they preached the name of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting, if you want to look at it, uh, you're certainly welcome to, but it's in Colossians chapter 1. I love this verse. Uh, we'll be back to Mark 13 in just a second here. But Colossians chapter 1, I think it has just a fascinating remark that is directly related to this statement that Jesus makes in Mark 13. See, a lot of people believe that Mark chapter 13, that the entire thing is about the second coming of Jesus. That's not true. I think that the first half is primarily about the destruction of Jerusalem. But but the people who argue against that will, will tell you that, that, that he says that the gospel has to be preached to the whole world before this thing happens, and obviously the whole world hadn't heard the gospel, and therefore they couldn't have, you know, there, there couldn't have been the destruction of Jerusalem. So, well, look at Mark, Paul's remark. This is Colossians chapter 1. It's a rather simple sta- statement. It says in verse 6, um, it says, All over the world the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. See, Paul understood in his day that the whole known world, as he understood it, had already heard the gospel. As far as they knew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this prophecy had been fulfilled. The whole world had heard the gospel. At least it had all been, it had been preached to them. And I suspect that that command still applies to go and tell to be ready to preach no matter what your circumstances are. My, my only question is, is, is this, is will we do that? 
Uh, will we have the courage of those early disciples to be people who speak, who are not intimidated by our world, but will have a voice, one that is willing to be heard? See, I, I just think that this is one of the most difficult times in, in the history of, of, of our world. The, the 21st century, the, the way that, that free speech is just being, you know, um, attacked. And I think that that's one of the things that's happening in our world, is that we just are intimidated as Christians that we're being shut down. People don't want to hear because well, it's just... That's the thing. But, but, but will we have that voice? Will we have a voice, one that is willing to be heard? It's going to be difficult. That's what he points out here. I mean, you heard it in the text. He says, be on guard. You're going to, you're going to get in trouble, but, but go ahead and speak and say it anyway. And you know, I, I don't know the lady's name. I, I looked around. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But it dates back to 1573. This, is, this was a young mother who had been exposed to the first English translation of Scripture and had begun preaching this word that she had discovered. She, she was going about preaching the gospel in the streets of English of, of, of England in, in the vernacular of the people. And, you know, something basically that just wasn't done. In fact, it just wasn't allowed. And she and several others had been arrested and had been put on trial. They had been condemned to be burned at the stake. And one of the things that, she, that, that was said about her, particularly her, of the six that were arrested on that occasion, she, um, um, uh, about her alone, it said that they screwed her tongue to the roof of her mouth because she wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. Her son and, and her little brother were, were there that day that she was burned at the stake. And a, a boy fainted. Uh, the boy fainted at the, at the sight of his mother going up. And, and, you know, you got the picture. But later on, he went through that, the ashes until he found the screw that was used to, to, to screw his, that, the tongue to. And, and he was never, ever silent again about Jesus his entire life. And I just find myself wondering, do... Do I have that courage to speak no matter what the circumstances? I, am I willing to pay the price? Because normally I'm, I'm quieted fairly, fairly easily. Oh, here's this age-old question, of course, right, that, that comes out of a text that has to do with the final coming of Jesus or, or the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which depends on where you put this. But what would you do if you knew, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Or in this case, that the temple would be, would be destroyed and the Jewish religion would be no more. Is there someone that you'd like to talk to? If you knew, if you just knew that tomorrow it's going to be all over. Is there somebody that you'd like to call tonight? See, I don't know when Jesus is coming. But I do know this. Knowing whether he is coming tomorrow or not knowing whether he's coming now, that should not make a difference. Because the message is the same, and we are not to be silent. Disciples are always ready to speak. Well, then, when you come a little bit further in this text, you get, a, you get to verse number 12, and he picks up this up again, and he says this. He says, brother will betray brother to death, 
and a father his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of, the, of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be, the day, will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord has not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So here is the announcement of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, that there will be this abomination that causes de desolation. You know, Israel had seen that before. If you go back and you read the the book of the Maccabees, uh, and they had the, you know, they slaughtered pigs on the altar. They'd done that already. And there's a lot of debate about what this particular desolation happens to be. You know, maybe it's when Romans, uh, when the Romans who eventually under Titus are, are, were, were, were to be taking over Jerusalem in 68 A.D. and then they sack the temple in 70 A.D. and totally destroy it. You know, maybe it's the time that they put up the idols there in the temple grounds and they then they began to sacrifice to those idols. I'm not really sure. I doubt, I doubt it, uh, you know, partly because this is a warning to get out of town before that happens. But when you see this abomination coming, he says, make sure that you leave town. That is such an amazing warning when you think about it. Because it is so opposite of the way that we usually look at it. I, I mean, if you knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, wouldn't you leave town now? Right? If I knew, wouldn't you start getting ready and packing and getting ready for all that? Wouldn't you do that now instead of waiting until you see the tanks outside the city you know, gates? <laughs> Just leave now, Right? But see, here's what I think the point is. Disciples are ready to suffer for the sake of the lost. I mean, have you thought about this? If the disciples believed Jesus that the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, why not just leave now? Well, I think that it's because they have family there. I think that there, was, there were friends that were there. I think that it's because that there were non-Christians there. And as long as, they, as that temple stood, they understood that there was an entire nation of people who would not know Jesus Christ and had not yet responded to the gospel. And so they stayed. And Jesus said, when you see these certain signs, that's actually the time that you need to leave and, and hope that it's not in winter and hope that you're not pregnant. But when you leave, don't take the time to go back to get your coat because it's going to be too late by that time. Get out while the getting's good. But it's interesting. They stayed as long as they could before they left. There, there's such a passion in the early church about reaching a lost world. 
that just, it, it's just absolutely undeniable. And, and when you come to grips with who Jesus is in your life, you become willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Christ, in order to reach people that you really, really care about. I mean, you read the history of missions, and I, I could give you example, a number of examples, but uh, this one at least in particular is, is something that, that at least grabs a hold of my attention. But you read the history of missions, and all of a sudden you are just confronted with people who had lost their entire family. You read the story, for example, of the Gates of Splendor. Um, um, I guess one of the reasons why this, that story is, is sticks so hard, uh, close to me, my, my dad was just fascinated by this story, uh, uh, the story of Elizabeth Elliot. And, uh, and she tells that story in the book, uh, the, the, Through the Gates of Splendor is the name of it. And uh, those other missionary families um, that were with them, they, they went to eastern Ecuador and, 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 and ministered to the Aka tribe. Um, so there was, I, I, think, I think if I remember, there was, there was five families that went to, to minister and every husband in that group, think about husband and wife teams going in, every husband in that, life, in that group was killed. But what Elizabeth Elliot did was just amazing. She came home long enough to retrain and then go back to Ecuador, and she reached the very man who killed her husband. She just blows me away. Every husband in that group was... What, it, what is it that makes people care about other people so much? What makes them care so much about lost people that they're willing to suffer? And, and does that kind of thing still apply? Have you ever thought about this, this text recently in 2 Peter? I, I don't, you can look there if you want. Otherwise, you can see it on the screen. But I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I just got to be honest with you. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the second coming of of Christ. I mean, do you? I mean, I, do you ever get up every morning wondering, you know, if, if today is going to actually be the day? I, I just don't. I, I know people who do. I'm just not one of those. But 2 Peter chapter 3, that, it just has an interesting comment, comment in it down in, in verse number 3. Look, listen to what he says. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning. I mean, boy, if he can say that then in the, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s A.D., don't you suppose that we'd be saying the same thing here in the 21st century? I, I mean, if he's going to come, don't you think he'd be coming pretty soon? Go down to verse number 8 in that same thing, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand. Slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why has the Lord not yet returned? 
I just think that it's because there are people yet who still do not know Jesus. That's, that's why he's patient enough to give them one more chance, one more opportunity. And so Christian people, disciples like you and me, suffer, are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, suffer for the sake of lost people, if that's what it takes, so that we stay close, or so that we stay with it as long as we possibly can before we get out. Now, there's, there's a transition here that occurs in this text. It's, it's, it just seems to me that, that the first half of the text very clearly is about the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and there are a lot of reasons uh, for thinking that. In verse number thir- 24, however, there's, there's a very clear shift to the second coming of Jesus, the return of, Je- the return of Christ. So look at that, verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Do you guys remember when we talked about the fig tree? That was a few chapters back, right? Learn this tra- cha- lesson from the fig tree. As soon as, it twi- as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Probably some kind of a, of a um, uh, indication that Isaiah 40 has something that was similar to that. But, but that's just really an inter- interesting thing. If you look at that, verse number, verses 28 through 30 appear to have kind of slipped back to the destruction of Jerusalem. It, it's just kind of an intriguing sort of thing. But maybe it has uh, t- two applications to it. I don't know. Maybe generations mean something other than that particular generation. I don't know. Maybe he simply means that the Christian error era will not be over. Um, But most of it is certainly focused and it's in reference to the second coming of Jesus. And it, it says this, I think, really, really clearly. The disciples are ready to celebrate when the Lord returns. Disciples are ready to celebrate when He returns because we look for His coming. We're, we're, we're anticipating it. We're, we want Him to return. We live in that anticipation of God's return. By the way, this text here makes it very clear. There's not going to be anything hidden about it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Left Behind series and, the, and the Tim LaHaye and all that kind of stuff, but but um, you know, you know, not to not to try to slam them or anything else. But I, I just, I just got to tell you, everybody's going to know it. I mean, you know that trumpet sound and the and the voice of the archangel and 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 he's not hiding anything. He is going to come in his full glory, and everyone is going to stop in their tracks, and and they're going to know he's here. And once he's here, it's going to be a little late to do anything about it. I, that's, that's why these chapters are right here. So that you and I will prepare right now for what's to come. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't even know 
I don't know if I even want to know. What I do know is I know that it's going to happen. See, the Gospel of Mark has already prepared us for that. It's asked that question, what has to happen before you return? Well, Elijah has come before Jesus returns, right? That, or Elijah has to come before Jesus returns, right? Well, that's already been done. Um, what has to happen? Well, the son has to suffer before he can return. Well, that's, that's done, been done. Uh, the, the, the temple has to be destroyed. Well, that's been accomplished as well. Uh, the church has to face some persecution. Yep, that one's out of the way too. Uh, the gospel has to be preached to the world. Well, yeah, that's all been accomplished as well. Which means that he could come any time that he wants because everything's ready. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. What we do know is, is that he could come, right? And we live in the anticipation of that, and we begin the process of learning how to celebrate that already today. I assume, at least, that you want to be celebrating his coming, that it doesn't trouble you that he's coming. But if you read the opening parts of, 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 of the book of Revelation, you know, some people aren't, aren't really looking forward to that. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation, some people will hear that trumpet, some people will hear their voice, they'll look up and they'll see who's coming, and here's what they're going to do. It says, they're going to say, fall on us. Now, by the way, they're, they're, they're talking about the mountains, uh, not, not, not to him, because they think that they're going to be able to hide. But he says, be ready, because your heart ought to be at peace at the thought of that celebration. See, un, unlike watching the fall of Jerusalem, in which the warning is, you know, when you see it happen, you know, you need to run for your life. When you see this one start to happen, just gladly fall on your knees and raise your hands because he's here. And, and, and that's really what you've been looking forward to all your Christian life. That's what we look forward to. Because at that point, the suffering is over, and so now we can begin, we can start to celebrate. It's, it's why we worship. It's why we do that. You know, and, um, so we, we get in the habit of doing what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. What we, you know, we, 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 we need a little training. Some of us, maybe more than others, just need some of that training. That's, see, when I celebrate... I'm just getting ready to do what I, I'm going to have the privilege of doing for eternity. Celebrating the presence of Jesus. Living in the shadow of God Himself. Knowing the real presence. You know, there's, there's just an awful lot of stuff we don't know. We don't know when He's coming. We don't even know how He's coming. But there is enough that we do know. We know that we need to know Him. We know that we need to listen to this text. And we know that we need to be ready. See, I think that that was what the Lord's Supper is really all about. Um, because here's what happens. If you follow this, this is chapter 13 we've been looking at. But in the next very next chapter... 
you have uh, what happens after Mark shares this 13th chapter, you have the disciples praying, preparing themselves for this Passover feast. And they gather to eat this Passover meal. And Mark, here's what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. It says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is, the, is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At that meal, he held up that bread. At that meal, he held up a cup. And he said, you are going to do this. And it's going to be me. And, and, and you're going to think of me. And you're going to remember me. And you're going to remember what I've done for you on this night. And 20 years later, the Apostle Paul would, would just give that a little bit interesting turn. He quotes this text, and then he says, we're going to do this in remembrance of, of him, but we're going to do it in a way that proclaims his death until he comes. See, the Lord's Supper is both a backward and a forward look. It certainly does look back 2,000 years, and it reminds us of what God has done on our behalf. But it's also always a proclamation of his death until he comes. And every time that, that we gather at this table, every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper together as a family, we're reminded Jesus is going to return. 